Welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show about all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. And now for today's episode of the show, David Schifrin on Clarinet Celebration 2019. The direction that I give to my students when they prepare degree recitals is to play something that you've played many times before and do it better, to play something that you've worked on but never performed, get it to the performance level, and to choose something that you've never studied. One of only two wind players to have been awarded the Avery Fisher Prize, David Schifrin is in constant demand as an orchestral soloist, recitalist, and chamber music collaborator and is also the Artistic Director of Chamber Music Northwest. Today we discuss the upcoming clarinet celebration and competition in Portland, Oregon, why David prefers synthetic reeds, managing a music career as a parent, and some tips on planning an artistic, fulfilling, and yet also challenging recital program, both for the artist and the audience. I hope you'll enjoy today's episode of the podcast, and be sure to check out Chamber Music Northwest at cmnw.org. Today's episode was brought to you by the generous support of the following sponsors. Dario Woodwinds has an exciting new weekly trivia show called Don't Blow It. You can check it out every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on their Instagram channel. And if you know the right answers to the questions, you might even have the chance to win some amazing new gear. By the way, if you haven't had a chance to try Dario's new reserve clarinet reads, you're in for a real treat. They're using some really amazing new technology and manufacturing techniques that are helping achieve super consistent results. You can pick up a box at your local music store or head to clarinet.com reads to buy a box right now. Chamber Music Northwest is hosting an international clarinet celebration and competition from June 24th to 30th in Portland, Oregon. You can compete to win over $20,000 in prizes in the Young Artist Competition, take part in clarinet ensembles, masterclasses, and clarinet mentor amateur workshops, and enjoy concerts by world-class artists including Karada Giuffredi and Jose Frank Ballester. Deadline for the Young Artist Competition is January 15th, and clarinetists aged 30 or younger may apply. Passes to the clarinet celebration are on sale now, and you can learn more at cmnw.org. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels, and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code clarinet at bakunmusical.com. So I'm here today with David Schifrin. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I wanted to start out the conversation today, of course, by asking about your clarinet celebration, but about 15 minutes before we got on the phone here, um, I had my brand new Bakun Lumiere clarinet show up at the door. So I'm showing significant restraint, um, <laughs> but it's probably good to leave it and let it warm up for an hour or so. But this is something I believe we both share. I, um, you upgraded to this clarinet recently as well. Is that true? I did. I, you know, I was playing on the mobile clarinet for a couple of years and and I was on one of my regular pilgrimages to Vancouver there was this shiny new clarinet on Maury's desk and he said you want to try something different and I did and it was it was lovely and I I got my name on the wait list to to uh, get a set of Lumieres and for me it's just the right the right mix of um you know, depth in the sound and flexibility and ease of playing. And so uh, it, it's never been more fun to play the, the clarinet than it is now with these Lumiere clarinets. What did you get as far as woods and, and key selections and all that? Cocobolo wood with silver keys. What do you like about that Cocobolo wood? Well, I feel like I get a warmer sound. You know, they're they're just different. I find that have to warm the Coco Bolo clarinet up a little bit longer before it really uh, gets in the zone. <laughs> but but I find that once I do, it holds the pitch and uh, stays really consistent for as long as I play it. Well, I can't wait to try it out here. Um, as far as the key work, is there um, what, what considerations do you put as far as the, uh, is it the appearance or the tactile response of the key work? Or I remember Karate G. Freddie had told me that he loved the gold simply for the way that it looks, but is there a reason you go with silver? <laughs> I just, uh, I like the way it looks. Uh, I don't really find a big difference. I had 
uh, a MOBA with gold keys on a, on a B flat for a while. And, you know, if I'm not looking at it, I can't feel a difference. Maybe others have more of a tactile uh, sensitivity, <laughs> but I, I, I really couldn't. So this is a question here from Shane underscore clarinetist on Instagram, and it's very related to this current topic. What advice do you have for clarinetists on selecting a new instrument? The two most important things are um, evenness of response and pitch. If you can play in tune and have an even response throughout the registers, there are all kinds of things you can do to... Um, produce the sound that you want with the equipment, with with tone production. But if the instrument doesn't respond evenly and if it takes uh, undue contortions to play it in tune, then, then there's really no chance of making music at the highest level. If you choose an instrument because you think it has a lovely tone, but the twelfths are really wide or the low register is really flat or the high register doesn't speak but you really love that tone, um, you're asking for trouble. Every instrument is a compromise to play in tune. You, you have to adjust, and you, all, you have to adjust even with the, the best possible instrument, depending on where you're playing, who you're playing with, what, what key you're in, uh, the function of the notes you're playing in the harmony. You're always going to be adjusting for pitch, but starting with the octaves, twelfths, fifths, fourths, that are in tune with it, with itself really makes a big, big difference. You also use synthetic reeds. What are the pros and cons, and why did you decide to switch to these? As recently as uh, maybe three years ago, I would, would um, bet very large sum that I would never be performing on plastic reeds. <laughs> and um, it, it seemed like science fiction to me. You know, for my entire career, I wished that there were plastic reeds or synthetic reeds that would be consistent and um, reliable. But um, I only really decided to try them because some players that I really admire sounded so good on them. I, I had invited both uh, Ricardo Morales and Corrado Giffredi to do guest master classes at, at the Yale School of Music where I teach. And um, was just knocked out with, with the ease that they played and didn't need to adjust their reads or worry about it. And uh, I thought, well, this is worth trying. So, so I ordered a few, and uh, you know, with kind of mixed results, it didn't work so well for me at first. But then I, I realized my mouthpiece was really set up for Van Doren V12 three and three quarters. Uh, yeah, or whatever, what do they call three and a half plus? I think in the in the Van Dorens, and um, none of the Leger reeds worked quite the same way on that mouthpiece. But then I uh, then I tried a few different mouthpieces that, um, and, and that made all the difference having the combination setup of the mouthpiece and the reed. And um, I experimented. In a rehearsal at the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, we were preparing a wind serenade concert. And um, I just went into a rehearsal one day and didn't mention to anyone that I was playing on a Leger reed. Afterwards, I asked uh, the oboist that I was working with, Stephen Taylor, if the reed that I was playing sounded okay to him and if it you know, seemed any different or having any trouble playing uh, and blending and playing in tune with me that day. And he said, well, you know, funny you should mention it. I thought it sounded especially uh, rich tone and, and stable pitch. And uh, so it sounds, like, it sounds like a really good read. I said, well, thank you very much. So I, I, I switched right then. I, I played the rest of the week and played all the concerts on it and, you know, I wavered a few months later, back and forth, when I was recording some chamber music. I thought, well, I should see if I can use my best cane read. And I did one session on it, and um, I felt like I really needed to go back to the to the Leger. And that was a couple of years ago, and I've, now I've only performed on, on the plastic reeds. And this is not a paid announcement, by the way. It's just really such 
such a relief not to have to go through the whole ritual of um, of breaking reeds in and working on them and and worrying how long they're going to last, whether they'll make it through a bomb sonata, you know, all of those things. Do you feel like, um, and this is a comment that I've I've heard from other guests on the podcast and people just in person, but there are a lot of people who feel that some element of the artistry of playing clarinet is lost when we give up on the cane reeds. Um, do you agree with that? or No, I don't really feel that. I feel like um, having uh, a more reliable uh, tone production source allows greater artistic freedom. I find that uh, the timbre that I can achieve with, with the Legere reed is more even, but that I can, I can vary it and, and do things with the voicing that, that give me all the colors that, that I ever was able to achieve with King. You know, I, I share another thing with you as well. The, the, the recording that I referred to, it's now out on Delos, uh, records and it's, um, a CD of of um, music of Carl Nielsen, including the chamber arrangement of the clarinet concerto, a number of works for clarinet and piano, and the uh, and the serenata in vano. And in the concerto, it, there were a number of uh, takes of various uh, various passages throughout the session, and some of them I played on cane reed, and some of them I played on the Leger reed. And I cannot tell in listening to the, the edited version of of the concerto. Actually, it was a performance with patches. And, and the performance, I, I played on the uh, Legere read. And in the patch session the next morning, I played on Kane. And uh, when I listened to the recording that's been, you know, based on the, on the performance with patches uh, edited in, I can't remember or tell where the, where the edits are and where the, and where the performance is. And so it's, it's edited back and forth between Kane and, and Leger and synthetic reads. The tone quality, to me, it sounds like me. I, I can't tell which is Kane and which is Leger. And and none of the players that I was playing with could, <laughs> could could tell either. Well, I guess that's the thing, right? If it feels correct and it sounds great, and and even to a discerning ears like yours, if you can't hear the difference, then it's the way to go. For me, I you know I can't say that for everyone. I, I don't I don't insist that my st- students play on any particular equipment either. I, I want them to play on whatever is going to work best for them given the ease of, of playing and the, and the sound that they're looking for. And I've had students who've gone back and forth and tried the Kane and Legere's and, and, you know, it's mixed. About half my students have switched to Legere and some have gone back and forth. Some have, you know, really felt more comfortable staying with Kane. And I'm sure that's, that's true for players at many different levels. I can tell you, my daughter... Uh, who's 13, plays the clarinet, and she started on cane reeds, and then I was really, really happy to switch her over to to Legere and not have to worry about a young student dealing with, with breaking in and adjusting cane reeds. Well, you know, before we went on air here, we talked a bit about Barry Green, who, of course, wrote The Inner Game of Music and was recently on the podcast. Um, and his equation for musical success, I guess, is Performance equals potential minus interference. So if the read is causing interference, whether that be interference preventing you from practicing because you're working on your reads <laughs> or it's it's not working as well as it could, then it's going to decrease the outcome. So, yeah, I think for a lot of players, especially young students, it might be a great alternative. Just get their mind off the read and into the clarinet, you know? I, I completely agree with that. And, and, yeah, you make a very good point that all that time trying to get the the best cane read um, you could be spending <laughs> actually practicing the, the instrument and the music. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a great development. Absolutely. So speaking of practicing the instrument, I think that young clarinetists all around the world are going to want to get practicing because this late spring you are hosting as part of the chamber music Northwest, 
a clarinet celebration and competition for young players. Um, would you tell me a bit about this, sort of the who, what, where, when, why, and uh, what to expect? Sure. Well, the event in, in Portland, Oregon, will be actually early summer, the, the, the very last week of June. But um, the competition begins now. In, we're in early January, and January 15th, 2019 is the deadline for the video round of the competition. The competition will take place uh, at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon, and there will be events at Portland State as well as at Reed College in Portland. It's it's a combination, really, of a giant clarinet celebration, a week-long event with 20 or 25 guest artists from around the world will be hosting a, a competition as well as concerts and master classes and, and symposia every, every day, all day uh, at, at Portland. The, uh, the competition begins with a video round. As I mentioned, it's, the deadline is January 15th and the, the repertoire was chosen in consultation with some of my colleagues and about with my strong inclination to keep the repertoire list fairly compact and to have primarily really mainstream great masterpieces for the instrument. So my feeling is that some of the international competitions have such a vast repertoire list that it becomes a little bit too diffuse for the for the contestants to do their best work because uh, they're learning so much repertoire that that it's really not their finest playing. But if we can concentrate on the real masterworks for the instrument, that that it might be able to display the true artistry of each individual contestant, and and I think it makes it more of a manageable task for the jury to make comparisons and hear the really outstanding uh, artistry of, of a few individuals uh, playing these, these works, which are, you know, really accepted and clearly the, the gems of our repertory. Now for the final round, uh, which will be in Portland, we're only going to choose six semi-finalists and each of those will have already won a prize. We're going to pay their way to Portland and and, and a thousand dollar prize for making it to the semifinals and, um, and and house them in Portland. The semifinals will be the same repertoire as as the video round, with the addition of a commissioned work from a young composer named Daniel Temkin, who is a really incredible creative force. Uh, we, we did a work of his last summer at, at our festival in Portland. I was so taken with that. I thought I'd, I'd want to give him an opportunity to write a piece that I know is going to be played by many, many people. And that would be something that would have to be learned on an even footing that the, the, um, the semifinalists will be selected in uh, probably in early March and we'll all be given the score at the same time for, for the work that they'll have to perform in June, along with the, the standard repertoire. In addition uh, to the uh, video round, those who get to the finals will play the complete Mozart Clinic Concerto with piano, and the first movement of the Mozart Clarinet Quintet with the award-winning Ralston String Quartet will be in residence that week in a uh, combination of, of rehearsal, open rehearsal and reading session where they'll work with the quartet and then perform just the first movement of the, of the quintet. The uh, first prize winner will, will receive $7,500 prize and will perform the clarinet concerto with the festival orchestra twice Mozart concerto as the culmination of the, of the competition. And um, there will be a second prize and a third prize. And as I mentioned, uh, 
even the fourth, fifth, and sixth place uh, winners will each receive a prize. I've tried to make this the competition that I always wished the competitions I had gone to as a young player would have had, uh, namely that if you are going to travel great distances to compete, uh, that that you will already have your expenses paid and that you've won a prize just by being invited to the live round. And two, that the repertoire is, is manageable. And the other element of this is that there will be about 20 jurors with really widely varying perspectives and styles. And I think that that will, you know, hopefully eliminate any appearance of or actual bias towards a particular style. And of course, those of us who are students who are performing or people that we've worked with extensively will will excuse ourselves from voting on, on those players. So we try to make it as objective a, a process as possible. And we'll have, um, we'll have artists from all over the world, from France, from China, from Japan, from Australia, on the jury, uh, and from, uh, from Italy as well. Corrado Giuffredi will be there. Um, Fan Lei and uh, He Yi will be there from China. Uh, Brooke Tan will be there, uh, who's in, uh, I believe, in Tokyo now. Uh, we have um, many leading uh, clarinetists from from the United States and Canada. We've got uh, Jose Frank Ballester, who's a Spanish clarinetist who's now teaching at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Romy de Guise-Landrois, who's originally from Montreal, is now li- living in New York and teaching at the University of, uh, of Massachusetts. Uh, jazz players uh, like Ken Poplowski and a great player like Mark Dover, who's a great jazz player and is, the, is also the clarinetist in, in the Imani Winds. Players from, from symphonies around, around the country, uh, you know, including uh, Laura Arden, the principal from the uh, from the Atlanta Symphony, and uh, Ben Lulich, principal of Seattle, uh, and the entire clarinet section of the Oregon Symphony, recording artist Sung Hee Lee. Uh, I'm only mentioning a few of them. I'm very proud that my teacher, Fred Ormond, will be with us on the jury. I really think that we're going to have an amazing event and uh, looking forward to, to hearing all of these uh, young artists. Uh, and, and I hope that, that we'll have many people who will come for the event to hear them, but also to hear the concerts that we'll be presenting every night uh, that will feature all of the juries, the jury members, uh, of Corrado and, and, and Jose performing and Chad Burrow from the University of Michigan. Uh, Aude Camus is coming from, from Rouen, France. She's also happens to be the, um, the director of the Lancelot competition, which is an, uh, you know, I think a semi-annual competition now that takes place in various locations around the world. That's, that started in the hometown of Jacques Lancelot in Rouen, France where she's on the faculty of the conservatory. Uh, the concerts will feature Mozart as the centerpiece that will be doing, you know, his the quintet for the clarinet and strings, uh, but also um, more unusual repertoire, the, the fragment for quintet that was completed by Robert Levin in, in the, the movement in, in B-flat uh, major the adagio for two clarinets and three basset horns, the nocturne for three basset horns and three uh, voices. But the concerto, of course, will be performed by the competition winner on the same program with uh, a really amazing group uh, of artists performing the grand partita. So we'll have four of our clarinetists uh, in that with, with some of the leading wind chamber musicians at the festival. 
in addition to that, of course, there'll be a program of cutting-edge clarinet. All premieres and new works for the clarinet will have a jazz evening with Ken Poplowski and, and his quartet, an evening of all virtuoso works, including a couple of premieres, uh, a brand-new Bela Kovacs uh, arrangement of uh, an Esco-Romanian Rhapsody that is for two clarinets and piano that I'll be playing along with with Corrado Giffredi, all kinds of uh, really uh, unusual and and traditional repertoire during during that week. And then we'll have some really exciting clarinet ensembles and clarinet choir. We'll do a concert that have live performance of Steve Reich's New York Counterpoint, Peter Shickley's Monochrome for nine clarinets, a brand new piece by Nikola Mangani for for a large clarinet ensemble that that I asked him to write based on themes of Mozart, where which will be a set of variations where each variation will feature a different luminary clarinetist. Um, we'll be playing uh, Piazzolla for clarinet choir and Villa Lobos Pagianas Brasileiras number five for clarinet ensemble, and we're going to end the whole. Uh, clarinet choir evening with a full clarinet choir playing Bach's Staccata and Fugue in D minor. You know, think Leopold Stokowski and, and uh, Fantasia, but with the, with the uniformity of the clarinets from the contrabass clarinet up to the E flat playing Bach, Staccata and Fugue. So we're going to have this week-long event and feature two dozen of my favorite clarinetists and and host a major competition at Chamber Music Northwest. And it's been something that I've wanted to do and only really able to do it now because of sponsorship from folks like the Bakun uh, musical clarinet makers and some major sponsors in Portland. And because of the incredible staff we have at Chamber Music Northwest operations and administration and marketing who are able to put this together and make it really happen. I wanted to call it a clarinet celebration because that's exactly what it is. And we'll have vendors there, clarinet makers and uh, accessory makers and clarinet technicians. And, you know, we'll, we'll just have a really amazing clarinet geek week (laughs) (laughs) sounds like an epic clarinet celebration that's a ton of stuff wow yeah and it'll it'll be from june 24th through the 30th your listeners can can get all the information they could possibly want on the website for chamber music northwest which is simply cmnw.org Excellent. Yeah. And I've also set up a little link, uh, clarinet.com slash CMNW. And uh, I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes there. So you can head on over and, and check that out. And I want to advise, you know, anyone listening, especially younger players, um, these sort of events are just so worthwhile. I remember my first time going to something like this when I was still in university and I was, I was blown away by not only the number of things that I got to see, but the people I got to meet, the, the friends I still keep in touch with. So absolutely plan to get to if not this any sort of event like this that you have close by would be so valuable absolutely i have wanted to do this for years it just seemed like a daunting responsibility to host one of these big events but um i've been the artistic director of the festival there in portland for 39 years and um I'm going to retire from that position after next year in 2020, after doing 40 years. But I thought for my next to last year that I start kicking off things that are on my to-do list that I've always wanted to do and actually make them happen. So we're, one of those has been to have a week that just celebrates the instrument that I love and to in, invite many of the artists that I so admire to come and join me and to foster young players in this competition. And we're doing it. We've been able to uh, get the sponsorships that we need. And it's a very exciting thing that Portland is really incredible place to be in the early summer. I can't think of a 
better place to be for weather, and it's a really fun town to hang out in. So I hope many of your listeners will will be able to come and join us. You know, it's funny, at the beginning I said late spring and you're saying early summer. I guess technically it is early summer, but as a Canadian, I live in Calgary and um, we only really get about three weeks of summer in August. So it just seems, to me, it seems like still spring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, I've been lucky when I've been in Calgary in, in the winter. We, we get those Chinook winds a couple of times and you wouldn't even believe that there's ever any snow there. Yeah, you know, yesterday it was uh, about 13 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that wow. is in Fahrenheit, but yeah. And so my wife and I were like, we have to go for a walk. Like we may not get a chance again for three months. <laughs> so I don't know what happened, but yeah. So, you know, this whole event seems focused around bringing an opportunity for young players, not only to experience music, but also compete. Why do you think it's so important that we foster the next generation of players? Well, you know, I had lots of opportunities as a kid, but there were, you know, as a kid, I mean, as a young student, I still remember all the things that I wish were available. And I'm in a position now with many of my colleagues to try to make some of those things available to the next generation and want to be able to do that. And I can honestly say that there are just, so many gifted players now and more more so than when I was coming up and and that if there's a way to help give them opportunities that's something that at this stage of my life and career that I'd like to be able to do you know that brings me to my next question which was I uh, recently turned 32 I'm also no longer eligible for these type of competitions and you're talking a lot about how you were able to provide these opportunities for, for people now. And it made me start thinking, well, when should a person start thinking about fostering the next generation and not just their own career? Um, is it an age thing? Is it an experience thing? Is it something even young players should be doing? Like, how, how should we think about that? Well, uh, you know, that's what a great question for the ages. I've been uh, teaching since the very earliest part of my career. And, um, you know, one of the things that, at least for me, has come with age and, and, the, and years is to realize that it's not a zero-sum game. And, you know, the notion of a competition uh, can foster the, the idea that it's, it's them or us, or you or me, that's going to win. But uh, having gone through many of those competitions in my 20s, uh, you know, twice in uh, in Geneva, once in Munich, and all kinds of other competitions around around uh, the United States. What I take from that now, years later, is how much I, I developed, uh, and how much I learned, uh, and how much I gained from meeting uh, other players. I was playing in Japan just a couple of years ago and saw a clarinetist that I had met in Munich, you know, a generation ago, I hadn't seen in, in decades. And we had become friends at the competition, and it was like an instant you know, rekindling of, of an old friendship. And there are, there are other players that I got to know that way had so much music that I, I learned that I never would have if, if I hadn't gone to those competitions. And, you know, I know that our competition is very traditional in the repertoire, but I can guarantee that anyone who goes through the process of competing, whether or not they win a prize, is going to have a better understanding of Brahms and Mozart and Stravinsky and Debussy for going through this this uh, process. One That's one of the reasons also that I wanted to give more than just one or two prizes so that they'll essentially be six winners, uh, that it's a learning experience and a uh, collegial experience as much as it is a, a sporting event. Absolutely. I think that's some great insight into that. It's it's funny, too, because I imagine that uh, something like this can seem really intimidating to younger students. But what advice would you give those who are considering applying and aren't quite sure if they 
they qualify or, or will, will achieve what they want? Well, at this stage, they have to be comfortable with the repertoire. And um, we've chosen repertoire that, they, that any really serious clarinetist uh, should be learning or having in their arsenal at almost any any moment. Really, Brahms, Mozart, the Stravinsky pieces, and the Debussy Rhapsody are core repertory. So, if you're ready, put together a video. <laughs> you have a few more days and compete. If you think that that you can put together your best work. At this point, you should do it. And the uh, you know the thing that we have now with technology that we certainly didn't have when I was going to competitions as a young young clarinetist is the technology to give a, to, to make a really um, first class recording and video that's available to the jurors to be able to choose who is going to become uh, to the live auditions at almost no expense, very nominal um, application fee and whatever whatever um, costs are associated with making a video. That was the, that's a, practically nothing compared to what we had to do uh, as an American competing in Switzerland or Germany to get over there and compete at our own expense. So uh, the other thing is that we will give the prizes. One of the things that really uh, bothered me about the, the European competitions that I went to in the 1970s, they, they, they would advertise prizes and then announce after the whole competition, well, we decided not to give the first prize or we've decided not to give the first two prizes, and but you can get a third prize. That, that kind of thing will not happen. The advertised prizes will be awarded. Sounds like orchestral auditions today. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true too. And uh, that's one pledge that that I make if we're going to do this competition and advertise prizes, they will be awarded. I love that. I love how you've learned and and been sort of not only inspired but also found improvements on your past experience to, you know, allow the next generation to experience. I think that's great. Yeah, I hope so. So before we go, I really would be remiss if I didn't talk to you a little bit about your creative programming, which is something that you're you're very well known for. Um, what are some considerations that you put into planning a recital? There are so many considerations. Uh, how much time there'll be to prepare, who I'll be playing with, and who I'll be playing for. I, I program more than 100 concerts any given year, uh, sometimes because of the the programming for Chamber Music Northwest, which has dozens of, of events every year that I program in, and you know many of them don't, have, don't even have anything to do with the clarinet or recitals, and uh, the the student recitals that I deal with, uh, helping my students select works, and so there are different criteria for programming. But when I just schedule a uh, recital for myself, I, I try to play the, the repertoire that I love, that I've grown up with, and that, again, are the core works of the repertory. And, you know, in selecting the uh, competition repertoire, uh, I've chosen those works, the Debussy, Stravinsky, the Brahms Sonatas, and, of course, Mozart not recital pieces. But um, when I program recitals, I always try to cycle those works and, and, and combine them with with new pieces, commissioned works, pieces that I am trying to learn that, that are not often played. But, you know, to do, an, to do a mixture of those and, and to sometimes play transcriptions and uh, try to discover what works and what doesn't <laughs> trial and error, but to mix it with with things that I know are genuine masterpieces of the repertoire. I don't know how else to describe that because there's so many there's so many factors involved. Absolutely, I love the consideration for the audience, though. I mean, a lot of people just sort of put together a 
you know, this will be a night of music written in the last week that nobody knows and is very obscure, but you're, you're really considering, you know, not only what do people know, what do they expect, but also how to push the boundaries a little bit. Sure. And, and uh, you know, as a player, each performer has, if you're programming for yourself, you want to put your best foot forward and, and choose repertoire that you know will represent your abilities. The advice, actually, the direction that I give to my students when they when they prepare degree recitals is to play something that that you've played many times before and do it better. To play something that you've worked on but never performed, get it to the performance level, and to choose something that you've never studied. So to have those three different levels of of, um, of work for for an advanced student. That's something that you're totally comfortable with that you're going to try to even get to another level. Something that you've worked on extensively but have never had the experience of performing and something that you have never touched before. That you're going to learn from, from from the ground up. I love that. It's uh, founding true artistry, I think. That's great. So I have one more question here before we move on to a couple of quick listener questions and then something I call the lightning round. Um, and this one's more of a personal nature. I've, I've found that as the podcast has grown over the last three years, it seems to have also grown with me. And some of the questions are more kind of personally oriented, but I'm sure other people relate. Um, so over the summer, my wife and I had our first child and it has been <laughs> quite the experience. And I was wondering, I know you're also a father and if you could offer any advice for those musicians who do have kids and as far as trying to maintain your career and practice and everything else that goes along with being a musician that starts to sort of feel like it takes the back burner a bit. Uh, that's a great question. That's, that's not just a question for musicians. But, uh, <laughs> I remember my oldest son, the first time uh, I played the clarinet when he was in the room, he started to cry. So I thought, okay. Then for a while, um, I, I would practice with him on a, uh, one of those backpack things. And he'd fall asleep on my back. So he got used to it. Now, but now, um, my wife and I have triplets who are 13 years old. And, um, you know, I think most parents learn that you do things that you need to do when the kids are asleep. Uh, and so, so I had to find a place where, uh, I could practice that didn't wake up the kids when they were sleeping. So did you just play very quietly or did you find a different room or? I play in a different room. But but honestly, I would I would practice when I'm on the road or or between students when I'm teaching for the longest time, uh, and you know then when my kids went to school, I, I if I practiced at home would be one there in school. Now two of them are are pretty serious uh, musicians at age thirteen. My daughter plays the clarinet. My son one son plays the trumpet. So when they go up to their rooms to practice, I practice in my in my studio. I practice uh, when they're in school and when I'm on the road and when I'm at school between teaching my students. Those are the prime times for me. Do you guys play any music as a family? Well, sometimes. Uh, my kids who are musicians, they like to arrange stuff and they have a little jazz band that they do. And So um, once in a while, I'll play along with them. It's uh, something I've yet attempted to do is to play while she's napping. So, but now that I've got this new Lumiere clarinet, it's it's bound to happen. <laughs> <laughs> How old is she now? Six months, so still very young. Oh, so she's uh, she's getting into a good routine though. Congratulations! And, uh, thank you, thank you. I actually played bass clarinet for her a while ago, and she found that quite amusing. So that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> So I've got a couple quick listener questions here just uh, to answer real quick. This is another one from Shane underscore clarinetist. And he says, what are your thoughts on the online clarinet community? There are all kinds of uh, Facebook groups and emails going around. And, and there are a few people that are always the ones who seem to be posting on those. And um, I don't participate very actively, but um I really enjoy some some of the things that get posted once in a while. Um, really historic videos and performances and repertoire. But I don't really have the time to to get involved 
very much or, or to take advantage of the things that people are always posting. Every once in a while, you'll see an old poster, or an old program that gets posted, and uh, it's really quite interesting. So, you know, the Internet really has, just like for, for every subject uh, and every uh, interest, made lots of information and resources available. Uh, and another aspect of the online clarinet community is, is someone like Michelle Anderson, who has developed a whole community of, of clarinet learners. And she presents these master classes online and has a group that travel with her as well to uh, a number of clarinet events. And she'll be bringing a group to a celebration in Portland in June. But hers is primarily an online community. She she gives clarinet lessons online and master classes and a whole series of of how to videos and so that's another aspect that's very positive in learning and and, and sharing uh, how, how to play the instrument. Absolutely, there's so many resources which would have been impossible years ago. I mean, Michelle Anderson. I was actually a guest on one of her uh, clarinet nights or something like that she hosts and uh it's actually kind of a all over the world i think we had people tuning in over 100 people from all over the place which you know they're just at home that's impossible 20 years ago 10 years ago that's crazy so it really is well if any of your listeners want to get a chance to meet michelle i should have mentioned early on that she'll be there for the entire festival celebration and competition to be on our jury and um, we'll be hosting some of her online community in person at, at Chamber Music Northwest in Portland. So here's another question from Jefferson underscore S underscore 3740 again from Instagram. Do you have any more recordings coming up soon? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, thanks for asking. I mentioned uh, that, that there's a Nielsen recording that came out uh, in the past year that has um, this arrangement of the clarinet concerto that is masterfully done by Renee Orth for a small ensemble of, of eight players reducing the entire orchestra to eight players. And it works so beautifully. The, essentially, uh, it is the uh, instrumentation of the Schubert octet plus a snare drum. So the solo clarinet, bassoon horn, and then a string quintet and a snare drum. And I'm very pleased with this recording. And, and we've paired it with other works of Nielsen, including the Serenata in Vano, for those of you who are familiar with this really kind of funny piece and touchingly expressive and then just really out-and-out comedic um, for clarinet, horn, bassoon, and cello, and bass. And the rest of the album is all clarinet and piano. There's a very early Nielsen work uh, for... Uh, clarinet and piano, but I've transcribed um, a pair of oboe pieces by Nielsen that work beautifully on the clarinet. And uh, Steve Cohen, the clarinet professor at Northwestern, has transcribed a whole series of piano pieces of Nielsen called Humorous Bagatelles for clarinet and piano, and we've recorded those as well. So that for those who are... Um, familiar with the clarinet concerto want to hear more Nielsen and hear this really unusual and wonderful arrangement of the concerto that is much more um, accessible because you can you can find eight players to play with a lot easier than you can an entire orchestra and it really really um, is a wonderful representation of Nielsen's uh, music of course, much more so than, than playing it with piano. And uh, in many ways, rivals the the full orchestra because of its clarity. And so I hope people will listen to the Nielsen album. Um, I have another album coming out just in the next couple of months. We're just finishing up the, uh, the, the booklet for it right now, which is three new clarinet quintets that, that I... Uh, helped commission uh, a new quintet by Peter Shickley, a new quintet by Richard Daniel Poor, and a new quintet by uh, Aaron J. Kernis. I think they're masterpieces and that I hope people will listen 
uh, the uh, the is with the Miro string quartet. The the Aaron Kernis pieces with the Jasper quartet, and the Daniel Poor is with the the wonderful Dover string quartet. And this has been uh, already mastered and and getting ready for release um, in, in the early spring. Well, I hope everyone uh, checks that out, and maybe when they do come out. Send me a message and I'll be sure to send it out to my followers. That'd be great. Please. That's great. Thank you. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I want to really thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Um, also, if anyone wants to learn more about the Chamber Music Northwest and the clarinet celebration and competition coming up, you can head to clarinet.com slash CMNW or you can go to cmnw.org. And do check that out. Um, I think it's really worthwhile attending, like I said at the beginning. And I definitely hope that I think I'll be there for some of it. So if, if you are going to be there, maybe we'll run into each other. And if you do see me, please come up and say hi. So thank you so much, David. Was there anything else you want to add before we go today? No, I just want to thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. Show notes for this and all other episodes can be found at clarinet.com. While you're there, Don't forget to join our email newsletter for free updates, exclusive offers, and a chance to win giveaways. Guest requests, listener feedback, and comments can be sent to feedback at clarinet.com. Special thank you to our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Don't forget to check out their new show, Don't Blow It, on Instagram, and also try a box of their new reserved clarinet reads next time you're at the music store. The show is also brought to you by Chamber Music Northwest. With over $20,000 in prizes and world-class guest artists and vendors, Their upcoming clarinet celebration and competition is an event that you don't want to miss. Learn more at cmnw.org. Hosting for Clarinet is sponsored by Bakun and their new line of Lumiere clarinets, barrels, and bells. Get 10% off your next accessory purchase by using code Clarinet at bakunmusical.com. This program was produced and hosted by me, Sean Perrin, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Music performed by Michael Lowenstern. Debate episodes co-hosted by Andrew Morrow. Audio editing by Brian Chappelle's and copy editing by Megan Taylor. You can support the ongoing production of this independently produced program by donating to our Patreon at clarinet.com support. Supporters get early access to extended ad-free regular podcasts and exclusive access to patron-only episodes and live events. That's all for now. Be sure to tune in next time for more of what's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry on the Clarinet Podcast.